You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast. I'm your host, Dr. Andrew Hammond, historian curator here at the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. SpyCast's sole purpose is to educate our listeners about the past, present and future of intelligence and espionage. Every week, through engaging conversations, we explore some aspect of a vast ecosystem that looms beneath the surface of everyday life. We talk to spies, operators, mole hunters, defectors, analysts and authors to explore the stories and secrets, tradecraft and technology of the secret world. We are SpyCast. Now sit back, relax and enjoy the show. This week's episode coincides with the 20th anniversary of the International Spy Museum. And we celebrate it in our new purpose-built home that surveys this city, a global epicentre of intelligence and espionage. Of course, a building is only part of the story, and not even the most important part. The collection is of immense importance. Our artefacts that make up the world's preeminent collection of intelligence and espionage-related objects. But the people are what makes the place what it is. They're what bring it into being and populate it with their vision and creativity. It's quite fitting then that in this week's episode, I speak to Alexis Albion. Alexis was involved in every exhibit, wrote the master script, and has been with the museum on and off for a long time, helping to shape its creative direction. For this week's episode, we dug out some artefacts from our collection that are not on public display and used them as prompts to explore the life and legacy of someone Alexis has long been fascinated by, a member of the Cambridge Five, one-time MI6 officer and the so-called spy of the century, Harold Kim Philby. Listen to two curators discuss his life utilising some of his personal belongings. Happy birthday, spy. See you in 20 years for the 40th. I'm so excited that we've eventually got the time to make this happen. So I just wonder to start off, there's so many things that are interesting about Philby, but he's quite often referred to as the spy of the century. So for our listeners, why do you think he's given that title, the spy of the century? What's meant by that? It's a great question because, I, and I think it's what drew me to being 
interested in him, which is, I mean, I grew up in England. Everybody's heard of Kim Philby. Um, if you say, you know, name a famous real spy, probably someone's going to say Kim Philby. And what fascinated me was, I thought, I realized that if you kind of stop the man on the street, name a spy, Kim Philby, what did he do? What did he do? What secrets did he betray? Why was he such a notorious traitor? Why was he the spy of the century? And most people can't answer that question. But if you said, why was he such a terrible, why was he such a traitor? You say, well, you know, he betrayed his country. He's an Englishman. He betrayed his country and his class. And he ended up defecting to the Soviet Union, obviously the enemy during the Cold War. And that, that spy of the century, it's almost connected more with this emotion, this sense of, of betrayal of, of country, of, of class, of, of what it is to be an Englishman, rather than any particular set of information. If you say Julius Rosenberg, nuclear secrets, there's a whole discussion to be had about that, actually. He can be connected with something specific, let's say with the Manhattan Project. But for most people, they don't know enough details about Philby to just say, let's say, oh, he portrayed the Albanian mission, for example, which we could talk about as historians. But it's more this sense of him betraying a sense of identity of class and country. And I found that completely fascinating. So why is he the spy of the century? I mean, maybe in a way, that fact that he's not identified with any particular event or set of information or intelligence, but he's identified with this idea of betraying his Englishness is perhaps why he's been such a lasting figure, because he almost is a touch point for the sort of history of the 20th century and England, Great Britain's kind of demise as a great power. That's how I see it. So the, the big, big things to talk about here, big questions. And that's really, I think, right, he's been such an interesting figure and has written himself into fiction, of course, some wonderful, great works of fiction that have had great lasting power above all, John le Carré, and so I, I think that's why I would call him the spy of the century. With Le Carre, we're talking about Tinker Taylor, right? Yeah, I mean, definitely there, yes. But I think his ghost is in the background in for much of Le Carre and, and other figures as well. Graham Greene, obviously, who knew Philby, and we can talk about that relationship. He's in the background there for some of Greene's great works as well. And we see TV shows, movies, anything, I think, where you've really got the Cold War spies, especially British Cold War spies and betrayers. He is there in the background. And, and just for our listeners, your parents are not English, aren't they not? No, and no. I'm not English. I just <laughs> happen, I'm an American, happened to grow up in England and caught the Philby bug. Mm -hmm. And do you think that part of why Philby holds such a, a fascination is, for me, it depends on the book that you read, but trying to establish the causality of who was the first member of the Cambridge Five or who was the most important or... How did X get Y involved or was it something else going on? And from the threads that I can discern, 
it seems like Philby's definitely central to the Cambridge Five as well. So do you think that that's part of it? Oh, sure, definitely. I mean, yes. Um, we've talked about Kilby, but Philby, you, you can't really talk about his story without talking about in, in the Cambridge Five, that whole circle of other of the portrayers, all of whom knew each other or who were at the university together at Cambridge. And of course, that's how I got drawn into this as well, by following those trails, trying to put the pieces together. Was there, was, were there more than five? Was there a six? Was there a seventh? So I think, yes, that's all fascinating. And yeah, Philby does seem to be a seminal figure in the center of this. When I was starting to get interested in all of this in the mid, late 90s, just at that time as well, the Soviet archives were opening up. And uh, I remember when the Matrokin archive was published by Chris Andrew. And uh, this published in a great big thick tome, a lot of information that had come out of the Soviet archives, smuggled out of the Soviet Union by Mitrokin, who was um, an archivist with for the Soviet archives. And if you look through that, there are little fascinating bits of information about the Cambridge Five and about Philby, which has helped shape the story, you know, that the Soviets didn't entirely trust Philby and others who had defected to the Soviet Union, kept them at arm's length, all that kind of thing helps fill out that whole story. It just, you know, makes you you question everything, which is a part of this story. What's true, what isn't? But I do, but it does seem clear that Philby is at the center of this and probably is the most able of any of them does have the most distinguished career in British intelligence, is the one who ends up, well, living a, a long life in exile as a defector in the Soviet Union, dying right before the fall of the Berlin Wall and the collapse of the Soviet Union. And so he, his life, we get to see him only within that context of the Cold War and only imagine what he might have thought about the collapse of the system to which he devoted his entire life. There are just so many fascinating things about him as a person, as a spy, as a betrayer, as a member of the of this circle as well. And just really briefly for our listeners, the Cambridge Five, we're talking about five students at the University of Cambridge in England in the 1930s and just some historical context. This is a time of great industrial unrest and Britain of great political and international upheaval. We're talking about the interwar period and the Spanish Civil War happens in the 30s and many people, many young intellectuals, many young undergraduates, they see this as the way of the future, that capitalism's inherently unstable and the forces of fascism are growing. So for many people, this is seen as a solution to the, the considerable problems that the world is facing at that point, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, young intellectuals um, around the world, actually, and certainly in places like Oxford and Cambridge, flirting with communism was very common and makes a lot of sense if you think about it. Capitalism it didn't look like it was going, it was doing too well. The Great Depression, and of course, fascism is the other direction to go in. And for people like Philby and his colleagues, the embracing of communism was really a reaction to fascism to a great extent. Um, so, you know, what is the third path here? And it was communism. And so that's, that's fairly common, and we see a lot of that. But what isn't so common is that adherence to that ideology for so long, past World War II and into Stalinism, 
um, after World War II. And of course, when so much information comes out about Stalin and about the great political upheaval and oppression in the Soviet Union. And it's, it is people like Philby and some of his, and his colleagues who continue to embrace communism as the way of the future. And that is where the betrayal comes and that where it's fairly unusual. I find that really fascinating, the way that you can tie in an individual's life like Kim Philby to, basically we're talking about the history of ideas, yeah. right? We're talking about the history of I, political ideas in the 20th century and even with that, you, you hinted towards it there, but even within communism, you had the Russian Revolution, you had Trotskyism, Leninism, Stalinism, and then there's the Soviet brand of communism, mm. the Chinese brand of communism. You've got communist parties in uh, Germany and Italy and so forth, and they've got a different view on it. So there's just this whole intellectual ferment. But you're right, to me, it seems fascinating the way that Philby was captured so completely and so thoroughly and always tried to walk that line between, not actually walk a line, but he was always an English gentleman who was really wedded to these ideas, which I just find really interesting. Mm. And of course... He did not think of himself as betraying his country, right? Because he thought of himself as an Englishman to the end. And his life in Moscow is is very poignant. Uh, it's quite sad. He lives <laughs> as a sort of Englishman in the 70s and into the 80s, right? In Moscow, increasingly with little to actually do. He, he really, he wanted the KGB to make use of him. And they do a little bit, but sort of really on the edges, maybe you know, make him some speeches, talking to some trainees. But he doesn't have enough to do. And he is, you know, still getting the, the Times of London, doing the Times crossword puzzle. Listening um, to the cricket scores. Right, listening to cricket scores, asking his KGB handlers to smuggle in in the diplomatic pouch jars of marmalade, you know, which you can't get. It's so poignant. And we can just paint this, close my eyes and see this picture of this aging Englishman in his tweed jacket and, and tie, smoking his pipe, which we have, and doing the crossword puzzle, drinking heavily, thinking about England. And going back to the, this idea of betrayal, which is... <laughs> And again, it's an intellectual engagement with this idea of betrayal. And Philby himself, who writes his own memoir quite soon after defecting, which is, of course, <laughs> a huge exercise in propaganda and telling his own story in the way that he wanted to, says he never betrayed the essential England, right? The England that, that he believed in. In fact, England betrayed him. And I think it is this... You're right, it is really a, a, a story about intellectual history. And I think it's why, again, we're so fascinated by history. And then there are sort of, there are Philby fans. There are people who have sympathy for this man who was very intelligent, educated, and was able to express his ideology eloquently in his memoirs, for example. Graham Greene colleague of his at one point, a friend went to visit him in Moscow and ended up actually writing the introduction to Philby's memoir. And I'm just going to grab a copy of it right here. And in, in the introduction to Philby's memoir has this wonderful line 
You know, he betrayed his country. Yes, perhaps he did. But who among us has not committed treason to something or someone more important than a country? In Philby's own eyes, he was working for a shape of things to come from which his country would benefit. You know, that line has caused a, f- a furor and, and a huge discussion about, about what loyalty and betrayal are, the sense of country. What was England in 1968? What kind of country was it? What was there to be loyal to? This is getting into all kinds of wonderful discussions all around this figure of Philby. He's so interesting. And I think for me, like, I'm not a, I'm not a fan of what he did or the people that died as a result of Kim Philby and so forth. But I almost find him fascinating as a character in like a Shakespeare play. He's this Englishman who becomes wedded to this cause and ends up living in this country, which means that he's very much a fish out of water in terms of his cultural persona. But ideologically, he feels himself at home. And it's almost just this tragic, fascinating, very complicated figure that is almost impossible to get to the bottom of, which I think leads to the fascination for many people. Yeah, you're right. I don't want to sound as if I have sympathy for somebody who, whose actions led to the death of certainly scores of people. Well, I think we can pretty definitively see that, that cause and effect, specifically this Albanian operation <laughs> in the late 1940s where Philby basically tipped off the Soviets about Albanians uh, who had left Albania and were being put back into Albania in order to try and overthrow the government, start a revolution. This is on the part of the CIA and British intelligence. And Philby tipped off the Albanian communists there who basically picked up these men on the beaches and slaughtered them. We can link his actions to that one, perhaps others as well. He was certainly responsible for people's deaths and never seemed to have regretted it for one one day. He is a fascinating figure because there are all these different sort of connotations, these different directions we can go in and look at him in. I mean, one thing that I find interesting about what Graham Greene wrote is that it's not just a case of ideology and country. Philby also betrayed friends, people that he was in a relationship with, colleagues, his institutions that he worked for. I mean, he it was much more broad than just England. It was it was betraying everything and everyone really, and that's why it was such a shock to so many people. Oh, absolutely! And of course, he he was such a charming man. Obviously, very bright, very charming, made many friends, and of course, most famously, were very good friends with Jesus James Angleton became the head of counterintelligence at CIA. And I think probably never got over that personal betrayal, that idea that he, that Angleton just hadn't seen it, just hadn't seen it that this fellow who he lunched with and drank with and socialized with and personally liked was a traitor. That had consequences for Angleton and for the CIA for decades, right? This idea that, that there were traitors, there were moles within the agency, within American intelligence, and that certainly stemmed from that personal betrayal from Philby. And Angleton was, he was an implacable anti-communist as yeah. well, wasn't he? He yeah. wasn't just, well, he's a you know, an agency guy and he's very genial and of course he loves his country. I mean, this guy was very strong foe. Yeah, very, (laughs) 
a very uh, implacable foe of communism, which mm. made the betrayal all the more profound. Yes, absolutely. So there are certainly ripple effects from Philby's betrayal that go, yeah, that go beyond the personal and into the institutional. Obviously, British intelligence too suffered from that for a long time. Certainly, some of that being their own fault. There were uh, quite a few people who um, suspected Philby's loyalties, and yet it to have acknowledged Philby actually had been a spy would have been far worse than covering that up and trying to shut that to the side and hope that nobody noticed, which is what happened. But when Philby does defect to the Soviet Union, it's in 1963, I think, and this is the time of investigative journalism and the British press gets a hold of this story and starts investigating, finds out about these third man revelations from the 1950s when first two of those Cambridge Five that Andrew referred to, McLean and Burgess, had disappeared and ended up in the Soviet Union. And all fingers point to Philby as being the third man who had tipped him off. Philby very publicly denies this. And then that denial is, is, is endorsed in Parliament, of all places, by Macmillan, who then ends up becoming the prime minister in the 1960s when Philby himself defects to the Soviet Union. It's a killer of a story. British press starts to dig into it. In a, after a couple of years of digging, it's splashed all over the front pages of the newspapers. And the focus is as much on the incompetence of British intelligence as it is on Philby, the super spy. And just on that question, so Philby... There's this finger of suspicion over him. He's investigated, questioned. There's lots of rumours kicking around and so forth. And then his friend, Nicholas Elliott, goes to confront Philby when he's under enough of a mark of suspicion that they're not going to employ him in MI6 or another intelligence agency. So he's living in Beirut as a journalist and then his friend Nicholas Elliott goes to meet him and then, and this is, of course, the subject of a great book, A Spy Amongst Friends by Ben McIntyre. And then he goes from there to the Soviet Union. And I guess as someone that's dug into the archives and that's thought and researched this quite a lot, what's your view? Do you think that British intelligence more generally or Nicholas Elliott specifically said, I'm going to look the other way and feel free to get out of the back door or do you think it was incompetence or do you just think it was a cultural thing, you know, it's fine, he's my chum, he wouldn't do this to me or like what's going on? What's your take on Philby leaving on a, I think it's a Soviet container ship yeah. and ending up in the Soviet Union when yeah. a senior MI6 officer is there with practically a bulletproof case that he's the third man? I think what we know is that Elliot was sent to Beirut in order to get Philby's confession. I think that's the reason why he was sent there and he was a friend of Philby's and it was thought that would, it would be easier for him to get that. And they dined together and my understanding is that Philby did confess. So then what happened <laughs> is the question. Why, was, why were the cuffs not put on right then? He was taken into custody, shipped back to England, put on trial and thrown into prison for the rest of his life. Why did that not happen? Instead, what happened is that they seemed to have parted at the end of the evening. Philby went home, Elliot went home, 
And by the next day, Philby was gone. (laughs) And then a few days later, he turns up in Moscow. I I guess my interpretation is that it would have been extraordinarily embarrassing for the British government and for British intelligence to have had that trial of Philby. Just because of the names that would have came out the and the people that he yeah. would have embarrassed right. and so forth. The, and, and why ha- had he not been arrested a decade earlier in the 1950s after the disappearance of the, of the first two of the Cambridge spies, Burgess and McLean, when he was asked if he was the third man and lied, <laughs> right, on in a press conference and was apparently, that was it. He was believed, okay, you say you're not the third man, I guess you're not. I think it would have been incredibly embarrassing uh, at a time when, and I think the context is really important here, British intelligence had already taken a few blows at this point. They'd had a number of scandals, including, I believe, the Vassal affair and, of course, Profumo, right? It had happened quite recently. So I think British intelligence was already smarting from a number of, of blows and certainly didn't need this. They didn't need that public trial. And I think, I'm not sure what directions were given to Elliot, if any, in particular, or if, like, we know you'll do the right thing, perhaps. But I think it was probably with a great sigh of relief that Elliot informed his superiors the next day that Philby was gone. And what do you think, Andrew? <laughs> I think that I get the impression that it was a you're going to be allowed to get out of the back door. I don't understand unless it was extraordinary incompetence or bumbling, which of course is never out of the question. That it just happened that the quote unquote spy of the century just walked away. So I find that kind of difficult to believe. But I suppose some of our listeners, one of the questions they could ask is, well, what could be more embarrassing than a senior member of the establishment going to the Soviet Union and then for the rest of the Cold War constantly being a reminder Mm -hmm. of the incompetence of British intelligence for not finding this guy? Why would they allow the Soviets to have this ongoing multi-decade propaganda tool to use as a stick to beat them with? Why would they allow Philby to, even if he's given them information, he can still communicate that information to more people or in more effective ways. Why would we allow this person to go there and go and train communist Warsaw Pact intelligence officers? Wouldn't it be better just to bury him under the prison and just make it a quick trial and try to send him down? So I suppose that would be the counter-argument. Have you got any Thoughts on that? Yeah, it's a it's a good question. You know, by this time, Donald McLean was over there. Guy Burgess was over there. We also had George Blake, right? <laughs> who just, who was a British spy who'd been caught, arrested, had broken out of out of prison That's in the late fifties, right? Talking about breathtaking <laughs> yeah, competence. Yeah, famously <laughs> broke out of Wormwood Scrubs prison and is also over there in the Soviet Union. So I guess he would just be one more. I don't know. I'm sure they uh, maybe thought about that calculation. I'm not sure how much trouble those three fellows were causing at that time. And this is all speculation. I have no idea. But I'm guessing that politicians are thinking perhaps short term and <laughs> and thinking about the immediate future and how that would reflect on them and their 
election chances, perhaps, because, you know, it does involve people at the highest level. And just thinking that the saving face now (laughs) by just not having to be confronted with that trial and knowing that Philby was going to (laughs) play that for all it was worth, was worth it. I think that's an important thing to remember just with from a historical point of view. Like we may look back on that now and say we're weighing up these two things and how could people possibly have made that judgment? Mm -hmm. But one thing that democratic politics is famous for is that the limit of the horizon is a four or five year cycle. People that were in power then were probably just thinking about their careers, their promotions, the next vote for members of parliament or so forth. So that time horizon that they would have been thinking about would have been very very short term. They wouldn't have been thinking, Mm. okay, in the whole scope of the 20th century, you know, what do we want to do vis-a-vis Kim Philby so that historians 70 years from now will judge us in a favourable light? They're just thinking, I want to get my parliamentary seat in the next election. Quite possibly they thought that the story might not come out. It does take about five years, I think, between Philby's disappearance, his defection, and when, you know, this story gets splashed over the front pages of the newspapers. It takes a while. Possibly they thought we can just cover all this up. And the same thing happens with Anthony Blunt, another member of the Cambridge Five. It's only really in 1979 that the story drops and... Margaret Thatcher is appalled. It's like a an old boy's cover-up. And then I believe that John Cairncross as well. That information was kicking around, but it only really becomes public after the Berlin Wall comes down, right? Yeah, yeah. But I think, yeah, so quite possibly they and figured they could have control over this and in fact have some influence on the press not to release this information in the name of national security as well. <laughs> We'll be right back after this. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. There's another couple of things that I just want to touch on before we've got a nice reveal for the audience that we're going to discuss. But just on on Philby's, you mentioned his charisma and confidence. One of the things that I find so interesting is when the mark of suspicion is on him, this is the third man, etc., etc. Philby holds a press conference in his mother's living room and you can see clips of it on Pathy News on YouTube if any of our listeners want to go there. And Philby is there, he's rubbing his hands, he's grinning like a Cheshire cat, he's working the room, he delivers this performance that his Soviet handler calls breathtaking. You're under suspicion as being the third man and you hold a press conference and you don't just hold a press conference and stick your tail between your legs and say it wasn't me, you know, I never done it. 
he lights the room up. He has everyone eating out of his hand. He, it's almost like Daniel Day-Lewis, Meryl Streep and Robert De Niro rolled into one. I mean, that's just so fascinating, the way mm. that he was such a convincing, basically, liar. If you're going to tell a lie, tell a big one and tell it to everybody at a press conference <laughs> where it's going to get on the local, on the nightly news. He just went all out. And it worked. I believe he said he was stepping down from his job at British Intelligence, right? And he sort of, the shadow over him wouldn't be right for him to carry on in his job. He fades away into the background, gets secretly hired on a number of years later. But yeah, no, and it's an extraordinary performance. And yeah, it's hard not to watch that and recognize why he was such a great spy. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah, it's really fascinating. And the other thing that I wanted to talk about was the American link. So Philby spent some time in D.C. along with Burgess and McLean and so forth. But Philby spent some time in D.C. He's, you couldn't make this up, he's the liaison between MI6 and American intelligence. Uh, James Angleton becomes a friend. He dines with him regularly. So Philby's here, but... I want to speak about that and also just the effect that Philby and the other two members that defected in the uh, 1950s had on that Anglo-American intelligence relationship. So during the Second World War, it becomes strong. There's lots of links at the personal level and institutional level. But then the Cambridge Five, I believe, uh, if I remember correctly, there are some suspicions anyway, but the British, I know there are people like they're solid, they're kosher, everything's fine. And then the Americans feel really burned by this whole experience. Is that right? Yeah, I think it's the Venona cables, actually, in which the, these code names are identified as being linked with McLean. I think it's really McLean whose name comes up there in the Venona decrypts, which were these the Soviet diplomatic cables that have been collected in the 1940s, but aren't, aren't, don't start being decrypted regularly until the 50s. Um, and so it's McLean name who's came up. I believe Is that, that Homer. Yes, I think that was his code name. I believe that, you know, amazingly, Philby is actually in on these Venonic cable decrypts and knows that his friend is in danger as codenames come out and he tips him off. Burgess is a slightly different case. <laughs> he decides to go along with McLean. He actually hasn't been identified but thinks that his association with McLean may come back to bite him and he's, a, he's an alcoholic and a homosexual and has a quite an outrageous life in D.C. Um, and has already had some warnings against him and his outrageous life. And he tags along with McLean. I think the Russians think he's a bit of a liability as well. And of course, Philby being connected with both of these men, it's quite obvious that some suspicion would fall upon him. I can't remember your question now. Yeah, the question was the effect that Philby and oh, the right. other members had on the relationship yeah. between yeah. British and American intelligence. Yeah, I mean, despite Philby's press conference, which seems to win over his British audience, the Americans aren't convinced They're at not all, <laughs> not at all. And in fact, 
are very annoyed and uh, Philby is persona non grata, absolutely gets kicked out of the United States, don't come back. I think it's hard to recognize that, that relationships were really were between US and British intelligence were quite rocky in the 1950s. And in fact, US-British relations are quite rocky into the 1960s as well. Suez. Suez, absolutely. These British spy scandals that come out, that certainly makes the Americans quite worried as well about British security, about their ability to to secure their intelligence. And of course, there's such an open relationship between British and American intelligence, between MI6 and CIA, that they are quite concerned about it. So yeah, there are quite rocky times there. Philby's defection, as we've talked about, Angleton and what where he goes with that. These are not easy times between the two countries. And yeah, the Philby, the Cambridge Five, actually you can see that they're at the centre of that and sowing these seeds of suspicion that the British can't necessarily be trusted. And you see this coming up in Tinker Taylor, right? Yeah. We want the Americans to trust us again. We want to share information with them so that we get some back. There's this trying to rebuild that relationship up that comes across in fiction. Yes, absolutely, yeah. And I'm sure that Le Carre, who was an intelligence officer himself, probably that's coming from his own experiences at NMI6. I'm sure he probably felt that, that the Americans were always the ones with lots of money and you needed them, <laughs> you needed their resources desperately. And and the Americans always admired the British for their experience in intelligence and um, and their expertise. But when these stories start coming out, wears away at that admiration for British expertise. I find it really fascinating the effect that Philby just had on British intelligence separately and American intelligence separately. You know, the relationship for sure, but... For British intelligence, one of my favourite books, which is part non-fiction, part fiction, is the book Spycatcher by Peter Ray, former senior MI5 officer. And it's so interesting to me because it seems to me that the first half of the book is very true to form, it's very tight. He's this brilliant young technical intelligence officer for MI5. He tries to bring MI5 into the modern age when a lot of the senior people are these almost figures from a Victorian novel or something like that with the big moustaches and the distrust technology. And he's a tech guy. He comes in, he loves the cat and mouse game of intelligence and counterintelligence and surveillance and counter-surveillance. And, and it's all really great. And then almost it seems to me, I think it's halfway through the book, he says, after Philby defected, it, it just wasn't funny anymore. You know, I used to love it, but then it was just, who, who can you trust? The people that you would never suspect, should you suspect them? So it's interesting to me the corrosive effect that that seemed to have on British intelligence, almost for the duration of the Cold War because of the Cambridge Five. So you've got the early 50s, Burgess and Maclean. You've got the early 60s, Philby. You've got the late 70s, no less a figure than Her Majesty the Queen's purveyor of pictures, which is, you couldn't make this stuff up. And you shouldn't forget that there was a whole theory about Prime Minister Wilson as well. Uh, that, uh, <laughs> Being a Peter communist book, spy, yeah, which brings yeah. us back. It, it does get to be pervasive. I think there's this sense that if these people, these trusted people who went to the right schools, who knew the right people, be, have surprised us to such an extent that you know, the, the communist 
scourge is more pervasive than we thought. And you do get these incredible conspiracy theories running through everything. And yeah, there's a whole, <laughs> there are whole books devoted to this and to this theory that British Prime Minister Wilson was actually a Russian spy. And I, I don't think that's ever been confirmed, but it is all linked, I think, to the suspicion that comes out of the Cambridge Five and Philby's at the centre of that. In terms of people that are accused, if you were to say, oh yeah, Her Majesty the Queen, the person that looks after the royal art as a Soviet spy. That almost sounds like well, a, oh, that's sure, that's crazy. Mm. But if that's true, then why could a bunch of other things not be true, right? Yeah. And then I was just saying there that, yeah, you've got the 50s, 60s, 70s, and then John Cairncross just after the Berlin Wall comes down. And it seems to me that in the second part of the book, Peter Wright starts chasing ghosts and he's looking for, he's looking for, spies everywhere he's looking for things that don't exist and I think you almost see something similar with Angleton uh, in the United States as well and Peter Wright yeah Harold Wilson he says that the head of MI5 Roger Hollis is a a Soviet mole Uh, and then Angleton there seems to be this corrosive effect on American counterintelligence because of Angleton which you can probably partly attribute to his relationship with Philby, yeah. I find that so fascinating. Do you have any thoughts on that? No, I think it is. It's one of the tentacles of this story, which you can... They're so broad, right? Yeah, I mean, that's what's... It is It is fascinating. There are so many rabbit holes that you can fall down. And I think we all have that there are these sort of tangential effects that the Philby betrayal has on people personally, as you said, on these different institutions and so on. It does all go back to the idea that this person who seemed like they were the the perfect candidate, the perfect spy, again, came from the right schools, the right education, the right family, was brilliant, well-spoken, charming, all the best connections, relationships with all these people, turns out to be just rotten at his core. <laughs> and you're right, if that can be true, then perhaps all these other things can be true too. That also reminds me of a phrase from Tinker Taylor, there's a rotten apple, Jim where Control was looking for however the mole is. I think it would be good now. What the listeners don't know is that this whole time we've been talking, we've actually got a bunch of Philby artefacts right beside us on a trolley. So here at the Spy Museum, we speak about them in our exhibits, but right here beside us now are some of Kim Philby's artefacts. And it's weird because you can smell his pipe And you can still smell that tobacco smell that Kim Philby smelled once upon a time before he died. We've got a shirt here and I swear that you can still smell traces of Kim Philby on the shirt. So it's really, really interesting. And this is one of the best parts of the job, I think, being able to engage with these artifacts. So let's move from the realm of ideas to concretize our conversation and some of these artifacts. So I just wanted to ask you, Alexis, what was one of the first things that jumped out at you on the table that we have here? His pipe, just it does seem so quintessentially British, doesn't it? And Philby himself seems so quintessentially British. So yeah, I think the pipe is fascinating. And you know, we have pipes in our collection that look like pipes but aren't, right? <laughs> They've got a spike in them or um, there are 
dead drop or a hiding place or a, I don't know, they've got cyanide or something like that. But this is just a pipe, but it's Philby's pipe. Are you sure? <laughs> <laughs> Shall but, we take it apart? Yeah, not sure if we're allowed to do <laughs> the that. The collections manager will yeah. have our guts, yeah. I think this one is just a pipe and it was Philby's pipe. I know that much, if not everything that we have in our Philby collection does come from his time in Moscow because we were lucky enough through our the donor who was able to get this, I think after Philby's death from his Russian wife, who he married in Moscow, uh, Rufina Philby. She passed on a lot of his personal items to this collector who is now it's in our collection. So I'm guessing that this pipe is from his time in Moscow. Um, again, going back to that image of this Englishman sitting in his apartment in Moscow, not able ever to go back to the country of his birth, smoking his English pipe and his tobacco, wherever he got that imported from. So I think that's a kind of a very poignant artifact there. What jumps out at you? I think one of the things that jumps out at me is the Leica camera. It's just such a beautiful, it's just such a beautiful artifact and it's just so well built. You could hammer nails with that thing. And it just fascinates me to think that what did Kim Philby see when he looked through that lens? What parts of Moscow did he see? So just like for each of us as human beings, we encounter a certain world through our own eyes. It's our window onto the world. What did Kim Philby see through his eyes, which is some of what was spoken about? And what did he see through this camera? What did he think? Like sometimes when you take a photograph, you think about what you're taking. What did he think about the material conditions in the Soviet Union? What did he think about the lives of regular people? What did he think about the social structure? Did he think that was an improvement on the society that he'd came from? So I just find that interesting because it would be interesting to know how Kim Philby viewed the world through the lens of this camera. Yeah, yeah. I wonder if he brought that with him to Moscow or obtained it when he was there? It's a good question. We should find out. <laughs> Let's do that. <laughs> we should look into the model and find out when it's from. That might give us an answer. We do have one of his shirts here and we've got a number of pieces of Philby's clothing. And in the exhibit that we have here at the museum, we do have, I think, Philby's suit with, I, I think it's probably got a shirt and a tie and his, and his trilby hat. It is one of my uh, my happiest memories, actually, from when we were developing the museum, when we were actually had to uh, pick out what artifacts to put in the Philby exhibit. We knew we were going to have this sort of figurine of Philby, as we do, of our other uh, sort of individuals in that exhibit. And um, we had the suit, and I know I had to pick out a shirt for him. This shirt that we've got right here is a gray, gray and white check shirt and I had actually picked out that one I think and our exhibit I'm blanking on the title collections manager collections manager Dina. Our collections manager at the time objected and she said no you can't choose that shirt I said why it's Philby's shirt and she said it doesn't go with the suit <laughs> and we had a wonderful discussion which left me in tears of laughter about what would Philby have worn, uh, which involved trying to look up images, photos of Philby and trying to get a sense of his fashion style, actually. And along with that, trying to imagine, you know, whether that would have changed in the 1970s and 80s in Moscow and what kind of shirt and tie he might have actually worn with that suit and having to channel him. 
And it was a wonderful discussion and not sort of one that I thought I'd be having as a curator <laughs> at the museum. But I just like to tell people we did really try to channel uh, Philby in that sense and say, what would he have worn with this suit? And we actually didn't, in the end, choose this grey and white checked one. I think we've got a pretty plain white pinstripe one downstairs. <laughs> and was it always going to be Philby? Was Philby always going to be one of the people? Oh yes, definitely. We wanted to cover betrayal uh, as a theme in this exhibit. And of course, Philby is such a seminal figure. And we do have wonderful artifacts as well. That was really important to us. And for those of us who are really interested in Philby, I think seeing those artifacts, those items that were associated with him in one of the, the great artifacts we have in the exhibit is actually his samovar, again, from his life in Moscow. And it's juxtaposing that with the pipe, right, <laughs> which is so, so British, and this samovar, which is so Russian. A um, samovar is a Russian... Yeah, urn, basically, in which you keep your tea coffee, I suppose. Every, everybody has one. And so uh, Philby had his samovar as well in his apartment. I just, I think it's such a wonderful item to have. For our listeners as well that aren't super familiar with his life in Moscow, can you tell us a little bit more about that? He ends up with a Russian wife and... His, goodness, I think it was his, was it his second wife joined him over there in Moscow? Second or third? I think it was his third, actually, if I think about it. Joins him, actually, in Moscow, not immediately. I think some months or maybe up to a year later. And she does actually come and join him. Now, Donald McLean uh, was in Moscow as well, and his wife was with him. Now, there's uh, uh, Philby's wife doesn't last very uh, long in Moscow and, in fact, ends up leaving. Philby himself ends up having an affair with Donald McLean's wife. It's an awful lot of hopping around going on. More betrayal. On. More betrayal, <laughs> absolutely. And so he ends up getting his divorce and then probably being set up, I would guess, with a Russian woman, um, Rufina, who ends up becoming his fourth wife, Rufina Philby, who stays with him for the rest of his life. She's a bit younger, um, but in, from all accounts, seems like a perfectly happy marriage, actually. As I think I mentioned, you know, he, he thought that going to Russia, he would become a general in the KGB, that his services would be needed, used, he would be helping the KGB with their efforts, obviously, against the West, but finds out that he is kept at arm's length, is not given very much to do, actually has to keep asking, what can I do? How can I help? Is brought in a couple of times to talk to trainees at the KGB. I believe he's once brought over to East Germany, actually talks to young Stasi officers there to inspire them. But mostly doesn't have an awful lot to do. Starts drinking a lot. There's an an alcoholic by all accounts and has lived a rather sad life. He does have some visitors from abroad. We do know, I think members of his family came to visit him. Graham Greene came to visit him. But he's living from what I can see seems quite a sad and lonely existence actually in Moscow. Um, not feeling very useful. Writes his memoirs. That's quite early on actually. And tell us about them. We've got two, yeah, I mean, two versions right We've got two versions right here. We've got a British version and a Russian version. I believe it gets published in 1969. So it gets on it quite quickly. It does get published abroad. I mean, it is very much... 
Philby's version of his life. He doesn't go into a lot of details about the juicy stuff that we would like to know. He talks about his his childhood, something about his relationship with the other Cambridge Five. He throws in there a lot of snarky comments about British intelligence, basically. Um, it, it's pretty much, I think, as one would expect from somebody who is selling his version of events. There's quite a lot of crowing there about the third man incident and how everybody believed him and how extraordinary it was. What a great job he did. But pretty much it reflects, I think, the view from throughout his entire life in Moscow. He, he never relents. He never sort of, much as my mom might want to, he might say at some point, you know, maybe I made a mistake. Maybe there are holes in communism and Soviet ideology. No, never. That never happens throughout his entire life. He always, he seems to express no regrets whatsoever. And then, of course, dies in 1987, I believe, um, or 88. 88, yeah. He was, must have been in his 60s or so, coming up on his early 70s at that time. I think his liver was in very bad shape, so not entirely unexpected. He is then, after his death, given all those honors that he craved during his lifetime. He is given as a state funeral open casket there. We actually have photos in our collection of that funeral from the open casket and so on. A stamp is actually issued with his image on it, one of the Soviet Union's great spies. He is given a medal and so on, all posthumously. And then a couple of years later, the entire system Soviet Union collapses and and he never knew. And I think it is it is quite painful to think that he never knew that. <laughs> you just wish I, I I would like to have seen the look on his face, like to have known what was going on through his, in his head if he'd seen that that system entirely collapse before his eyes. It's quite ironic that he dies in almost blissful ignorance. Absolutely. It's really extraordinary. And think it as well, like, just on Philby not being trusted, that wasn't just Philby, that was typical for Soviet intelligence, right? If you were a defector, it's not, it wasn't just because it was Kim Philby, it wouldn't no. matter who you were, you were never, you were always going to be held at arm's length in case you were a triple agent. So there was always that residual mistrust, right? That is certainly true. I think it's just, uh, again, this impression that we have, the spy of the century, <laughs> and that Philby himself, sort of his expectations. And what we find is that actually from those Soviet archives, that he, he was he was never, that all of Cambridge Five were always kept at a bit of an arm's length throughout, even early on in the 30s and 40s, there were always suspicions about them. I find it quite interesting with Philby as well, just to pick up on what you were saying. So Anthony Blunt, it seems to be more, oh, that's something that I'd done when I was young and I'm embarrassed about it and now I'm quite happy doing my art. John Cairncross, he was quite committed ideologically, but he was never as central because of his social upbringing and background as Philby was. His family weren't as connected as Philby's and he was, yeah, I've done that, but actually I'm a, a scholar of French literature. That's my calling, that's my purpose. Burgess is a famously outlandish figure. McLean is a, definitely a committee communist. His life goes off the rails very quickly. But Philby's just this dogged, 
I'm committed to the cause until the end. I'm not embarrassed about anything I've done. It wasn't a youthful dalliance. I don't consider myself anything else other than a foot soldier who'd done it within the realms of espionage. So there is something different about Philby in terms of his relationship to espionage and the Soviet Union compared to the other members of the Cambridge Five, right? Yes, definitely. And I think that's why he makes him such an interesting character in literature because Philby never gave us any hints of any doubts whatsoever. And it's through fiction and literature that I think authors have tried to explore the mind of Philby and thought there must be some kinds of doubts there. And I think that's the realm where people have tried to explore him because he's clearly... You know, he seems like such a more interesting person than that kind of one-sided, dogmatic, sticking-to-the-ideology kind of guy. He never gave us uh, any hints there of any weakness. But And I think this is authors and filmmakers and so on have, have found that so interesting to try and explore if there's something more complex there. And we've also got a Russian copy of his book, and his book's called My Silent War, right? Yes, Yeah, we've got a Russian copy here. And then interestingly, it is actually, there we go, came out in 1968. And we actually have written in the front here a little inscription from Kim Philby himself. It says, to Gennady. We're not entirely sure who Gennady was. I'm guessing he was, may well have been his Russian handler in Moscow. Clearly, we've seen a number of things where he refers to Gennady here. So I would think quite a close friend in memory of long years of fruitful cooperation and of hope in hopes of more to come Kim Philby and it seems to be the 23rd of August 1980 so clearly a gift to his friend years afterwards one of the other things that we have here which I find really fascinating is this photograph of Kim Philby and he's with a hockey team and he's sitting... Hockey. <laughs> an ice hockey team. Yeah. And he's looking rather out of place. He's sitting at the front holding an ice hockey stick. There's Soviet ice hockey players in the background. And then at the very back, you see an image of Karl Marx and one of Vladimir Lenin. I just find this such an interesting, almost a piece of evidence about the nature of the 20th century, where you have this ideological civil war between liberalism, fascism, communism. And here we have an English gentleman who smoked a pipe, who has a samovar in his apartment, sitting there with all of these Soviet hockey players. It's just really, really fascinating to me that this is one of the curveballs that history has thrown up. And it seems to me that this photograph captures the nature of that. I just wonder if you could have a quick look and reflect on it, Alexis. Yeah, I have. Uh, we don't know when this was taken, right, or why. It is funny because here's Philby sitting in the front row with a hockey stick in his hand (laughs) and all these young athletes sitting next to him and standing behind him like a class photo. I mean, my guess is he was sort of a minor celebrity and maybe was brought out to say a few words. I have no idea of complete speculation here, but perhaps they were an Olympic team who were being sent abroad and he was giving them some tips about going abroad or something like that as well because sports and, and politics obviously overlapped at that time. Perhaps we can find somebody who's more familiar with Soviet 
athletes during the Cold War and maybe identify this may I'm guessing they're a pretty high level team. It would be interesting to find out. But yeah, he just does look so out of place here. And I wonder what they these players thought of him. I wonder. Yeah. We can do some more research. <laughs> and there's another one here from his time in Moscow. And it looks like some kind of parade in nineteen eighty-three. And as a kid, I always remember watching the news. And whenever it was about the Soviet Union, it was usually some parade where people were goose-stepping in Moscow and there was rockets and it was all a big choreographed event. And there's one of these here from 1983. And I think Philby's in the front row with a bunch of dignitaries. And I guess I was wondering as well, you mentioned him being a minor celebrity. Like, how, how much was he... I know he wasn't trusted, but how much was he in contact, if at all, with senior people within Soviet intelligence or even Soviet politics? So, you know, was he well known enough that Gorbachev would have met him? Or, yeah, how well connected was he? We know, we know that he wasn't trusted, but was he shunted off to the side and wheeled out for bit parts? Or was he still a bit of a star within intelligence circles and did he have political connections? Do you know? I'm not 100% sure. I'm not sure. I, I think he wanted people to think that he was in contact with the highest levels. But I have the sense that it may be your latter description of being brought in every now and then. And certainly as time went by, if you think about it, he died in the late 80s. He was operating in the 30s and 40s, took a little bit of a break, and then back in the late 50s and 60s. How relevant was his experience in the 70s and 80s? I guess that would be up, up to the Soviets. But yeah, here, I mean, now it's hard to say. This looks like one of these meetings of the Communist Party of men in dark suits all sitting there under a gigantic um, <laughs> image of... Um, well, this is a this is actually an image of Dzerzhinsky. Yeah. Yeah. So this is a KGB meeting. That's what this is. Some kind of celebration. Yeah. A hundred and six years of oh, perhaps of the uh, I don't know Dzerzhinsky's birthday or something like this. I'm not entirely sure what that is. Um, but anyway, this is clearly some KGB celebration. And and Dzerzhinsky's quite well known because he's the head of the Czech and yeah. he becomes a almost a father, founding father. Father of, of Soviet intelligence, basically. Yeah. So I would think that definitely somebody like Philby would, would be brought out for something like that. I mean he was clearly I think somebody everybody knew about. But I'm just I guess what I'm saying is I'm not I think perhaps more of a um of a sort of a figure head and and less somebody who would be consulted for his expertise, which is what he wanted. Right? Mm -hmm. So I think to have him brought out for a celebration of this kind, put in the front row photographs of him next to other dignitaries, yes. But what he really wanted was to be seen as... Super spy. Yeah, super spy who's in importance as an intelligence and experience would be brought on in order to really help with their operations and so on. And... I think, as far as we know, that didn't really happen. And just mentioning there, his experience in the 30s, one of the documents that we have on the table before us, I think this is really interesting. Philby says, Since I began, the world has transformed. Also the intelligence world. 
rapid advances in science and technology have given us means of getting accurate information undreamt of in the 30s. I mention this because several so-called intelligence experts have advanced a theory. That theory is that scientific intelligence has given us such a comprehensive picture that human intelligence is no longer necessary. I find that really interesting. Philby as the human guy, some of the ways that technology did change during that period, because it was really profound, right? We go from biplanes and then we go to much more advanced planes in the Second World War, satellite, high altitude flights. There's just so much technological development during this period from the 30s through until the late 80s, right? Oh, absolutely. And I mean, a lot of this has to do with the difficulty of getting into, of actually human beings getting into these denied areas. So, for example, the Soviet Union was a very difficult place for spies to get into, uh, for intelligence agents to get into, um, being so cut off and to get, and the technology played a huge role here. This is the development of the spy planes of the U-2 and the SR-72 and so on, which are able to do overhead intelligence and take photographs of missile sites and so on and gain incredible amounts of intelligence in that way. Obviously, the Soviets were doing that as well. It was very dangerous to be an intelligence officer, an American, say, or an intelligence officer in in the Soviet Union. So technology allowed Western intelligence to, to, to look and listen in in a way that they couldn't have done before. But of course, that argument that Philby makes about the fact that human intelligence is still needed is one that we see coming up again and again. And we've seen it come up relatively recently as well, that over-dependence on technology can actually mean that you're leaving out a whole area of, of vital intelligence that, that only that the human factor can only help you, help you get. We've had that conversation lately, actually, that in American intelligence that, that not enough resources have actually been devoted to, to human intelligence, to cultivating individuals. That we still need people to play those roles of, of intelligence officers of going out, recruiting, talking to people face-to-face and so on. Um, so I think that argument comes up again and again and Philby would probably be making that same argument today. One of the things that I find quite interesting as well is that with these artefacts, these are almost like social history artefacts, right? They're not just talking about human intelligence. When many people think of human intelligence, they think of gadgets and tools and things that are meant to be one thing, but secretly there's something else. But we don't have that here, do we? We just have things that are cataloging the social existence of Kim Philby, Mm. which I think is quite interesting. Yeah. No, we don't have his uh, lighter that turns into a pistol or (laughs) any of those things. Uh, Yeah, no. And I'm not sure if he used those, actually. My guess is that he did not. Uh, Yeah. And just on that topic of human intelligence, what kind of things was Philby doing when he was working for British intelligence? Was he running operations against the Soviets? Did they have to give him that thing that we often hear of where to be seen to be doing his job effectively, he needs to take something home so they give him something that's relatively inert so it looks like he's doing his job properly do they give him chicken feed how does he manage to walk that line between being seen as an mi6 officer who's fighting the good fight and so forth versus 
trying to be this other person, having this other identity? I think, so he's working for British intelligence during World War II. I think we should remember that the Soviets were actually on our side, on our side <laughs> during World War II. So they were allies. That being said, that he was feeding information about British and American operations to the Soviets. And after the war, I believe he was on Soviet sort of counterintelligence uh, operations. And he was, he was feeding all that information so that Soviets knew what the British and the Americans were planning. But I think Philby had to be quite clever about navigating his this position, feeding information back to the Soviets while at the same time making sure that his position was secure. I think a lot of that had to do with his relationships with people. You know, he was put in these extraordinary positions where he was actually responsible for working against the people who he was actually loyal to. It all sounds so stressful to me. Yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Just to close out, I want to read some text from one other document, which I think is really fascinating. So this is a question that's put to him. What are your purely personal feelings on this? The 59th anniversary of the foundation of the Soviet intelligence service. He says, It is more than 46 years since I started my work for the communist movement. More than 45 since I was recruited into the Soviet intelligence service. Therefore, it is natural that I should look upon my whole life as being bound up with this service. It has given to me and to my activities meaning and coherence which they otherwise would have lacked. If I had followed a normal bourgeois career in England, I might have been at least moderately successful. What is certain is that I should now be living in retirement complaining about inflation and taxes, and looking back on a life devoted principally to my own personal advancement. Not a very satisfactory subject for contemplation. I just find that so fascinating. Any thoughts? This is why it's easy to get sucked into this admiration for a man devoted to a cause that was bigger than himself. It's easy to see some admiration for that if it wasn't for the fact that the cause that he was devoted to was, I think, one that was really quite inherently rotten, caused the death and murder of millions of people. Tens of millions. Tens of millions of people. He had was personally responsible for the death of individuals there. And that's sort of the area that Philby doesn't engage with, that where we'd like to sit him down and interview him and ask him quite directly how he felt about Stalin's purges, for example. I'd like to know the answer to that. But it's there is this other sort of side here that he talks about and where it's it is it is easy to get sucked into that. Yeah. He he certainly didn't want to have a life of sitting at home uh talking about inflation, uh feeling that he hadn't made his mark on the world. And instead he did by betraying his country, his friends, his government, his institutions, and then ended up sitting in Moscow for the rest of his life, doing the crossroad puzzle and drinking tea and a lot of vodka. I think it's really interesting just to see the way that he thinks about it and the way that he tries to justify it to mm. himself. Sometimes it seems to me that there's just so much cognitive dissonance going on with Philby. For the left... In the 20th century, when the crimes of the Stalin era come out, 
many people break with a more traditional communist line than when the Soviets invade Hungary in 56, yeah. Czechoslovakia in 68, yeah. or even Afghanistan in 79. People break. I can't be involved with this anymore. Or this is not what I signed up for. So I find that quite interesting, but Philby just keeps hanging on till the very end. And we can see from this, which is pretty late on in his life, that he just has never letting go of this youthful idea of what it was he was trying to do. Mm. Yeah, this flirtation or whatever or with communism is a pretty common thing that we see early on. And you've pointed out these markers where it's hard to justify people's adherence to the cause after those points where the sort of corruption of Marxist-Leninism is just seems to be so clear. But I don't know, maybe Philby didn't have a choice. <sighs> Couldn't go back to England. It would be wonderful to have him sitting down and we could ask him these pointed questions. Nobody ever got that opportunity. And I have the feeling that he would come back with some non-answers as well. Yeah. I don't think he was ever going to show his cards. Yeah. Well, thanks so much. This has been great. It's been really great to speak about this and to be continued. Yes, thank you. Thanks, Andrew. (laughs) Thanks for listening to this episode of SpyCast. Go to our webpage where you can find links to further resources, detailed show notes and full transcripts. We have over 500 episodes in our back catalogue for you to explore. Please follow the show on Twitter at INTLSpyCast and share your favourite quotes and insights or start a conversation. If you have any additional feedback, please email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. I'm your host, Dr. Andrew Hammond, and you can connect with me on LinkedIn or follow me on Twitter at SpyHistorian. This show is brought to you from the home of the world's preeminent collection of intelligence and espionage-related artefacts, the International Spy Museum. The SpyCast team includes Mike Mincy and Memphis Vaughn III. See you for next week's show. Hey listeners, we're always looking for ways to improve the N2K CyberWire network and maintain the intelligence-driven news experience that keeps you in the know on the latest developments in cybersecurity. We've launched our 2024 audience survey and would love for you to take a few minutes to share your feedback. And hey, there's even a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card if you complete the survey. Visit cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com survey and share your feedback now. <laughs>